Let's open our Bibles to the Gospel of John, and now the second chapter. John chapter 2. John's goal in writing his Gospel and his epistles, stated clearly enough for us at the end of John chapter 20, in these words, And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. Jesus did many signs that his disciples and his apostles witnessed that are not written in the Gospel of John. Some of them are written in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Some of them are not written any place at all. But these are written, according to the 31st verse, for us to believe. And since we already believe, like 1 John 5.13 teaches us, we want to believe more. We want to have our faith increased in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we know why John has written his Gospel. And when we look at John chapter 2, we begin to see some of the activities of the life of Christ unfolded before us and recorded in the pages of the Bible for us to have our faith increased. Chapter 2 takes up activities and doctrine and his discernment and perception of men that we didn't have very much of in chapter 1. Looking at chapter 2, and you've read it in preparation for today, it's tomfoolery that most ministers practice in getting into John chapter 2 and coming up with all sorts of practical lessons rather than the actual facts that are unveiled there of the divine power that the Lord Jesus Christ had. My wife and I last evening tried to listen to several sermons from John 2 as part of our devotions and had to shut them off after two or three minutes because there was some combination of bursting into laughter at the hilarity and nonsense of them or throwing up at the disgusting abuse of God's Word and the frivolous approaches. This is the Word of God about the Lord Jesus Christ and it's incredibly serious and there isn't a word wasted and there are doctrinal lessons to be drawn from every word that we can read here just like any other passage of Scripture. This first miracle recorded by John is to manifest His glory. Verse 11 summarizes the first 11 verses perfectly. John 2.11 This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth His glory and His disciples believed on Him. That tells us what this first miracle is about. It shows the glory of Jesus Christ. It should encourage us to believe in Him more. Let me read to you these first 11 verses of John chapter 2. And the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and His disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto Him, They have no wine. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? 
Mine hour is not yet come. His mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. And there were set there six water pots of stone, after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he saith unto them, Draw out now, and bear unto the governor of the feast. And they bear it. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom, and saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine. And when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee, and manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him. They already believed on him. So how'd they believe on him? They believed on him some more. They increased in faith because of this miracle. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Verse 14, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Who is the only begotten of the Father? The Son of God. Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and He's displayed here in this glorious first miracle. I trust that you believe the Word of God. If you don't like everything the Word of God has to say, then you won't be very happy here today. Because I want for us to see what we can draw out of these first 11 verses. I'm sorry for misleading you, thinking that I could get through the whole chapter. That's just an absurd idea that someone wrote to you recently. I want to share with you lessons that are found here in these inspired words of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and the doctrine that condemns Roman Catholicism. Because we have Mary presented to us right here, and we have Mary put in her place, yet honored, and we see the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we want to rejoice in all of it together, because all of it is true. And the third day, verse 1 of John chapter 2, we can't prove with certainty the identity or sequence of the third day here. It is not the third in chapter 1's four days because those days have already expired and they were in Judea and they're not in Judea here. It could be the third day back in Galilee by the context that it took them two days to walk the 70 miles that it would have taken from the Jordan River at Bethabara to those towns and villages surrounding the Sea of Galilee. That would be nine hours walking at four miles an hour pace. For those of you who've ever done that on a treadmill or something to know what four miles an hour is and as far as a pace, it'd take you nine hours and it would take you two days to transverse the 70 miles between where John was baptizing and Cana of Galilee. Jesus walked a lot. Jesus didn't have transportation like you and I have. It could have been 
some other third day, we could stretch it from John the Baptist declaring that Jesus was the Son of God, since that was a signal event of, of the second day here in uh, John chapter 1. But we'll say that they took him three days to get back to Cain of Galilee, and on that third day back, there was a wedding. Doesn't really matter. Doesn't alter a thing. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly what's under consideration here. We look at what's the simplest, and the simplest is it took him two days to walk back, and on the third day was a wedding. There was a marriage in Cana of Galilee. Cana of Galilee is one of the many little villages or cities surrounding that Sea of Galilee. Jesus is going to come back to this particular place in John chapter 4 after he spends some time with those inhabitants of Sychar, the woman of Samaria as we commonly call her. Nathanael was from Cana. We're told not until John chapter 21 that that Nathanael that Philip went and found in John chapter 1, he found him in Judea at the Jordan River, but uh, he was from Cana of Galilee. In the third day, there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee. Marriage here is a wedding, and we should keep the two terms rightly intended. A marriage is a lifelong commitment and companionship of a man and his wife. A wedding is the event that initiates and publicizes the marriage of a man to his wife. A marriage in Cana with the mother of Jesus there requires a wedding event in that place. The word marriage is used in the Bible to intend either the lifelong union of two people together in this divine institution or the wedding that gets them there. And sometimes a passage like Matthew chapter 22 where a king made a marriage for his son will go back and forth between the use of the word marriage and the word wedding and the word marriage and the the word wedding because marriage can mean wedding. Marriage can also mean something that a wedding doesn't mean, and that is the lifelong relationship of two people. What is marriage? So here's one of the first little trails that we're going to take. We have the Word of God introducing a marriage to us, and Jesus honoring that marriage by His presence. We ought to consider a little bit about what the Bible says about marriage. Now, it's different from everything else you're going to hear about marriage. And that's why I hope that you're here because you want to hear the Word of God and you don't want to hear some priest of Rome tell you about holy matrimony, which is one of the seven sacraments of the great whore and her abominations. Holy matrimony is an abomination. It is a sacrament of the Roman Catholic Church. When Baptists use it, you ought to throw up. When Baptists use it, John the Baptist rolls over first in his grave and then others behind him at the insanity of Baptists following holy matrimony. You ought to hate it. Lord, help us to hate it. What is marriage? What is a wedding? Is the real question that we're asking and we want to answer. Is a wedding a religious service of the Roman Catholic Church called holy matrimony? No, it is not. It is not her sacrament. Marriage is not her sacrament. God instituted marriage long before there was any Roman Catholic church. All she has done is take the things of God and corrupt and pervert them. Hate the words holy matrimony with me, for they are the name of that sacrament. Rome has seven sacraments to get you to heaven. And they take care of you from your infant baptism and all the way to extreme unction, which is called last rites, in a hospital bed someplace 
so that they can comfort their little people who follow them in ignorance. So they have these sacraments to get them saved all the way from birth. And you people that work at St. Francis know that uh, they get you pretty early on. And they take you all the way to the end. And in between there's holy matrimony, which is their corrupt idea of marriage and a wedding. A sacrament, the word sacrament, we don't use sacrament. Baptists don't use the word sacrament. That's why we're not Protestants. How can you tell a Protestant? Ask them what baptism and the Lord's Supper are, and they'll tell you they're sacraments. And you'll know you've got a Protestant. Who are they? Lutherans, Methodists, Episcopalians, Presbyterians. They all use the word sacrament. Do you know why? Because Mama told them to. Mama told them to use the word sacrament. Is it in the Bible? Not a chance. What's a sacrament to them? A sacrament is an outward sign instituted supposedly by Christ to give inward grace. It's an outward sign. It's an outward thing that you do that gets you inward grace. They pour water and spread it with a thumb in the form of a cross on a forehead of a baby, and it gives grace. That child is born again and becomes a child of God all the way to last rites when it's applied to someone in a hospital bed preparing them to meet God. It's an outward sign, supposedly, and a wedding doesn't have any of that. Not a Bible wedding. A Bible wedding doesn't convey inward grace. You better have inward grace before you get to the wedding. Roman Catholic Church is the mother of abominations of celibate priests and unscriptural weddings and everything else that they've come up with. By the way, you ever want to hear a movie endorsed from the pulpit? Just a little aside. It's called Spotlight. Since I'm on this subject, I thought I'd share this with you. It's how the Boston Globe took the great risk a few years ago of exposing all the priests in Boston that had sexually abused little children. And the courage that it took to do that in a city where 105% of the population is Catholic. And no one spoke against the Catholic Church in that city. It's a, it's a nice two and a half hour documentary of what took place. The Roman Catholic Church is the mother of abominations and of harlot daughter churches, according to Revelation chapter 17, verses 1 through 6. Fancy Baptist church weddings are trying to ape Rome. We always want to keep that in mind. It's like when Baptist churches have infant or baby dedications. They have a baby dedication. Where do they, what, what do they dress their baby in when they have a baby dedication sometimes? They go get a christening gown. Where do they buy it from? A Catholic store? You say, how do you know it's a Catholic store? If it sells christening gowns, it's a Catholic store. And so they bring a little baby in a christening gown into a Baptist church and bring it up to the priest whose real title is pastor, teacher. And he prays over that little thing. It's Baptists trying to have something akin to a baby sprinkling. There's nothing like that in the Bible. Show me where there's anything like that in the Bible. You say you're worked up? Yes, I'm worked up. I love the truth of God's Word. There's hardly anyone left that wants to really preach it. 
And that means to preach against Rome. Are there verses in the Bible that tell ministers of the New Testament that they are good ministers if they preach against Rome and keep the people in remembrance of the errors of Rome? Do you know where those verses are? Can you find them if you had to? 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1-6. through 6. The greatest enemy of Bible Christianity of the last 2,000 years is Roman Catholicism and her daughters. Catholic wedding and attendance appear at the altar. This whole idea of standing at the front of the church and coming down an aisle to stand at the altar in front of a religious representative is Roman Catholic thinking and practice of a Roman Catholic priest performing a wedding. We do somewhat similar things. Somewhat similar. But if we're going to do somewhat similar things, let's at least understand where they came from. And let's have enough that's different to show that we're not following her in lockstep fashion. Same things I've taught for as long as I've been teaching. The Catholic words, I do, and to have and to hold, are not biblical or Baptist. Doesn't mean you can't use them. Just means they're not from the Bible. And they're not Baptist. They're straight out of a Roman Catholic manual. Catholicism. A priest ratifies and blesses the marriage by the authority of Rome. We could have a notary public do our weddings. And it would have just as much scriptural authority and look just as good in the sight of God and in the state of South Carolina as some Baptist pastor pretending he's a Catholic priest. Amen. The only authority you ever hear, you should ever hear a Baptist minister ever appeal to is the authority of the state of South Carolina, maybe. Because that's all he's got, the same as a notary public when it comes to a wedding. We have a wedding in front of us. Jesus went to the wedding. What were weddings like back in those days? This is what I'm wanting to cover with you. A wedding is part of the mass in a Catholic church, and both parties take communion. The Catholics say that Jesus Christ raised marriage from a sacred contract to a sacrament by John 2, verses 1 through 11. All I can find Jesus doing at this wedding is not ratifying their marriage based on authority out of Rome, but making sure they had enough wine to drink. The Roman Catholics say that Jesus Christ's first miracle at a marriage feast shows its holiness. There's nothing holy about a wedding itself per se. The holiness is what the two parties ought to be practicing once they're inside the marriage toward each other. The Catholics say that Eve, being created from Adam's body, shows perfect equality. You can understand why the church is made up of women. Catholic says, the Catholics say, a marriage can only be ended by death. Absolutely no divorce for any cause whatsoever at any time. Same as fundamentalist independent Baptists who say they aren't Catholic. But where'd they get that idea from? They got it from Rome. They didn't get it from Jesus. 
unless they didn't read Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 19. They didn't get it from Paul because he wrote about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. They didn't get it from Jesus because in Matthew chapter 12 and Mark chapter 2, Jesus laid out principles of mercy and intent that cover us even if we didn't have Matthew 5, 19, or 1 Corinthians 7. Do you know who thinks that divorce is one of the worst sins in the whole world? Roman Catholic. Jesus didn't. God didn't. The Bible didn't. Abraham sent Hagar away so fast, and she was his wife. They had a national day of divorce in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, where everyone that had married an unbelieving wife, even though they had children, and wants to tell you very specifically there were a whole lot of children involved. They divorced those women all on one great big day of divorce. See, women, women get all emotional about this subject of divorce because they want some religion that will make their husband stay with them. Marriage can only be ended by death, in her opinion. Roman Catholics, the first and chief purpose of marriage is to populate the earth. When I read the Bible, the first and chief purpose of marriage is for the man not to be alone, but to have a companion. Let's compare some of the principles and practices involved in Bible weddings compared to a Roman Catholic wedding. God created and ordained marriage. His revelation should be the best info, don't you think? Amen. If we're going to look at how, what should a wedding look like, we should look in the Bible. God created the institution. God ordained marriage. And God picked the first man and his wife to, be, to get married. And He introduced them to each other. He's a great matchmaker, which we've considered before. A minister needs no marriage manual. He has the Bible. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. The man of God may be perfect except for weddings when he needs a Roman Catholic missile to get him through. No, the Bible is able to make the man of God perfect. Men and women realize the best. A man and a woman, a man and his wife, a husband and a wife, realize the best when they start and have a marriage God's way. If we try to do it any other way, it's not going to work as well because God that wrote the Bible and told us how to have a marriage is the one that invented the whole thing. God invented love. Men didn't come up with love. God invented love and created it between people and requires it and defines it and describes it. And sex and marriage and the bed and weddings and introductions. How big of a ceremony was there in Eden? Here she is. And the answer was, wow. Then amen. Traditional weddings are unscriptural in a number of ways. When I say unscriptural, that doesn't mean that some of their elements that we incorporate at times is are wrong and sin in our part. It's just that we want to know where they came from. They didn't come from the Bible. And they set a bad foundation for marriage. Some of the traditional wedding practices. In the Bible, we're told about a covenant commitment. A marriage is a covenant in the Bible. A covenant is a formal declaration of promises made to each other. And we're taught that in Malachi chapter 2 and Proverbs chapter 2, and I'm not going to turn you to those passages, or will be on the marriage at Cana for a long time. But I could turn you there. You've been taught these things before. In the Bible, the emphasis at a wedding is on the celebration and the feasting. 
Look at Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22, and let's see the Lord Jesus Christ describing a wedding that God His Father had arranged for Him in the Gospel. Matthew chapter 22. Now we've got a young couple sitting in here that are hoping to get married in a few months. They knew this was coming, but not exactly how bad it was going to be. I did tell them that it was, I couldn't help it. Look at John, Alex, look at John 2. It's out of my control. I don't know how to preach through John 2, 1 through 11, where Jesus is at a wedding without considering for a few minutes what the weddings were like that Jesus would have attended. You shouldn't be able to pick up on it that he wasn't there to perform at all. He wasn't there in the role of a representative of God. He wasn't there in the role of a priest, an apostle, the Son of God, the Messiah, or anything like that. He was there to celebrate and to provide wine when they ran out. Matthew chapter 22, verse 1. Jesus answered and spake unto them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king which made a marriage for his son and sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding and they would not come. Do you see the word marriage in verse 2? The word in verse 3 is wedding. Verse 4, again, he sent forth other servants saying, Tell them what you're bidden. Behold, I have prepared the ceremony and called the Father. No, behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fatlings are killed and all things are ready. Come unto the marriage. But they made light of it and went their way and so forth and so on. And so this is the presentation of the gospel by the prophets and the apostles to the nation of Israel. And so what does God do because they didn't like the wedding of the gospel? The king heard thereof. He was wroth, verse 7. And he sent forth his armies. Who was the general over those armies? Titus, Vespasian, Caesar. He sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. That's what happened in 70 A.D. when the Jews did not want to be part of the marriage to the Son of God. And it's a gospel marriage. Verses 8 through 14 go on to say that God the Father then turned His attention to guess who? You and me. And He sent out His apostles into the highways and hedges to compel us morons that were worshiping everything from bugs to stars to stumps to come on in. But the point I want right here is look what a wedding is. It's a feast. It's a big feast. Big animals have been slain. And he's made everything ready for the feast. Can you hear the Bible right now? Are you able to hear the Bible? And though you will not hear these things anywhere else, realize that, you know what? That is in the Bible. Are you Bible believers? Are you Bible Christians? Am I a Bible Christian? Am I going to submit myself to the Bible? The Bible itself says, to the law and to the testimony. If they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. And there is no light in the Roman Catholic Church. She's turned the institution of marriage upside down. I'm supposed to tear down the imaginations and thoughts of your heart and to bring them all into captivity to the law of Christ. 2 Corinthians 10.5. It's the warfare that we're in when we open the Word of God. And I hope that we come prepared that there really isn't warfare. It's excitement. Lord, give me your marching orders. I want to believe anything you have in the Bible. I don't care one bit what Rome says and everyone else says behind Rome. 
Bible weddings did not occur in a church building. Does that surprise you? Can you imagine all the Israelites asking the priests to step aside while they hauled their little girl into a tabernacle? I wonder if they used the Holy of Holies. Or do they just use the holy place? You know, they, they kind of, maybe that's where the, the unity candle came from because of, of the candelabra of the, uh, the Jews. It never occurred in a church building. I want all of you to be thinking right now. Why did yours occur in a church building? Because you're half Catholic. Why did it occur in a church building? Does that make a marriage special? Because it's in a church building. Not a bit. How many times do you think they've piped up the trumpets in Solomon's temple for here comes the bride? They were not overseen by a religious priest of any kind, including pastors. There isn't one description of a wedding or marriage in either testament ever prescribed over by a prophet or anyone like that. Where did the idea come from? It came out of a brothel that is situated on seven hills in the boot of Italy. They were not religious ceremonies or services with a liturgy as they are seen today. They emphasized the groom over the bride. Always, for obvious reasons. How much help do you need to understand that at a wedding, the groom ought to get more attention than the bride? Who was made for whom? Just going by the Bible. Genesis chapter 2. I'll make a help meet for you, Adam. 1 Corinthians 11.9 The man was not made for the woman, but the woman for the man. This is the Bible order. But they, they turn that upside down because it's a religion of women and men with the hearts of women that make up the Roman Catholic Church. Can't you tell by the way their father dresses? When your father comes out in your mother's nightgown, do you think that he's got the heart of a man or the heart of a woman? The popes of Rome. When your father comes out in your mother's nightgown, they emphasize the groom over the bride to match Bible, Bible, Bible marriages and weddings emphasize the groom over the bride to match God's creation ordinance. Did you notice that there in Matthew chapter 22, it was a king who made a marriage for his son. The marriage is always for the son. That's the emphasis. They emphasize the groom's father who called for the feast and paid for it, who in traditional weddings today is ignored and not even identified. If you go to a traditional church wedding today, the father of the groom is an unknown person. No matter how carefully you paid attention to everything transpiring before, during, and after the wedding, you will not know the father of the groom. Bible weddings didn't have all the vain and inane customs that are common today that I'll not bother you with right now. All the little goofy things that they do that come from Rome. Today's marriages emphasize the bride's mother over her father and the four given words that he has to say. The bride's mommy makes all the choices about, and ends up, ends up many times being the one that makes most of the choices about what takes place at a wedding. Neglect of parental honor reflects the lack of due honor for God's authority that should be visible and evident at a wedding. 
Today, they ignore the value of a dowry, even though there was such a thing in the Bible. And even if we were to only appeal to it in principle, it would still be a valuable thing because it was prescribed in God's law for a nation. India's Hindus are so ignorant that they reverse it to their perpetual shame. In the lack of a dowry, how can a groom's character and conduct be publicly evident? In Matthew chapter 25, Matthew chapter 25, we have the more appropriate wedding song. Matthew 25, the song that is typically played at church weddings in America is Here Comes the Bride. What is everyone supposed to do when they hear the first chord of Here Comes the Bride? Stand up. Why? The reason from Rome. The important person at the wedding has been standing for some time, made to wait at the front, looking like a dolt. Just think. They sing, here comes the bride. What does the Bible say a wedding looks like? Behold, the bridegroom cometh. Who's waiting for whom? Is the dolt down at the front waiting for his queen to come, whom he's going to obey for the rest of his life? Or is the bride waiting for a white horse to arrive with her groom on it? Matthew chapter 25 and verse 6, And at midnight there was a cry made. The virgins are waiting for this cry. Behold, the bridegroom cometh. Go ye out to meet him. And there he comes on his white horse. I've long dreamed of someone having a wedding where the groom could arrive on a white horse. And in a church it would be all the more appropriate. Because it doesn't belong together. If you go by the Bible, I know I'm crazy. I'm a wild man. And I'm always going to be for this and I don't care about anyone. In God I will put my trust. I love His Word. I'm going to esteem all of His precepts concerning all things to be right and hate every false way. God made me different. He made me, when I read something in the Bible, I don't care what everyone else does. I don't care what everyone else thinks. I trust Him. And it is entirely consistent with the whole Bible to have different kind of a wedding than Rome has forced upon us. Some of you should remember the Blues Brothers arriving in Greenville at the Hilton with their shades on. Joseph Latimer, Chris Carnell, and Eric Carnell to marry my oldest daughter. I love their arrival. It still makes me happy. 21 years later, you might be thinking to yourself, well, it doesn't make all that much difference. And I'm not going to say it makes all that much difference if the hearts of the two parties are right before they go into it. But why do you want to start a marriage off on the wrong foot by putting the emphasis where God doesn't put it? Why in the world does a man, you know, this is, this is old information. Why in the world does a man get down on his knees to beg for marriage? I just want to, where did that come from? It's neat. I think it's cool. I thought so. 
you've got the sense of a parrot. What about the Bible? Why in the world would a man get down on his knees to beg for marriage? Why in the world? What does she think she's giving him? She's getting far more than she'll ever give. A bride and the emphasis on the bride at a wedding shows insubordination, haughtiness, and a lack of reverence right off the bat. A woman should want to give all the reverence and all the honor to her groom that she's marrying. That's what it's supposed to be the rest of their marriage. Why would they turn it upside down for the wedding? Most brides show far more concern for their dress, their attendance, their guests, the ceremony, the groom's conduct, than for the groom himself. You All of you know that, that have ever part, been part of weddings. Marriage is a practical union that can be initiated similar to employment. For there is no example, precept, or principle for it to be religious ceremony in all of the Bible. Where did you get the idea that it is a religious ceremony? I just want to ask you. Why do Baptists celebrate Christmas? Christ Mass. Why do Baptists celebrate Christ Mass? Why do Baptists have organs in them? Since none of them did 150 years ago. Where'd they get the idea of a stinking organ? Since they went for 1,800 years without them. It's amazing. Why do Baptist churches have steeples? Why do Baptist churches have stained glass windows? Bible weddings were festive times of celebration up to seven days long. Jesus' role at the wedding in Cana was to replenish the wine. Do you know the official there? The official there wasn't a pastor. The official there wasn't a notary public. The official there was a master of ceremonies. He was the MC. Whether you spell that MC or you spell it E-M-C-E-E, it doesn't matter. All they had was a master of ceremonies. What does a master of ceremonies do? Keeps the event rolling. Bible weddings made virginity a public thing. If you were married in the Bible, everyone there knew whether you were a virgin or not. Now all Christian girls lie and wear a white dress anyway. Even Prince Charles and Diana. Now how long ago was Prince Charles and Diana? I'm an old man, I can't remember. Was it 25 years ago? 30? Something like that? Prince Charles, you know, little Diana had to go off to the uh, doctor and get a certification that she was a virgin just 30 years ago in pagan England. In my lifetime, in my lifetime as a boy growing up, being associated with weddings taking place because my father was a pastor, I knew about the white dress rule. In the Bible, you had to have tokens of virginity preserved from that first night in order to prove that that girl was a virgin for the rest of her life. If she couldn't prove that she was a virgin, she died. Do you think the church is going to get more glory in heaven than Jesus gets? Do you think when he puts the, puts the fine linen clothes, which is the righteousness of saints, on the church, that all of a sudden they're going to look better than Jesus himself and that heaven's going to bow and worship them? No, I'm just making the comparison between the marriage supper of the Lamb that we're going to. No, that's enough. More has been said. It was said in 1990 in a sermon series called Elements of a Scriptural Wedding. Because I'm crazy enough to believe the Bible about every subject that it addresses. Mommies get moved. 
and mommy's movements can never have anything to do with the worship of God. They are incredibly emotional to the point that they cannot think logically about Scripture. They get moved by singing carols around a blinking evergreen tree in the corner of the house. They get moved by having their daughter come down an aisle in a big fancy gown with everyone standing for their little girl and hearing, here comes the bride. And that's why they have husbands. To make sure that we stick with the Bible on all subjects. She's the weaker vessel. They're called silly women. They're the easiest prey for false teachers. Watch the camera pan a crowd at Benny Hinn, Pope Francis, or anywhere else, and see the women, and see the men with women's hearts. John chapter 2 and verse 1. We love our women. We love our women in the place that God gave them. And we as men had better take the lead and protect them from false doctrine and from false thinking and from false emotions. If a marriage were to play out the way the average Baptist church wedding portrays it, it is going to be a dysfunctional mess. Thankfully, most Baptist girls in the past knew better than the Roman Catholic ceremony so that once they were in the marriage, they did know that they were supposed to submit to their husband. And so the marriages survived. But we want to, we want to do better if the Lord will bless us. John 2, 1, and the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. So we have this statement given to us, the mother of Jesus was there. And since we have already had introduced to us thoughts about the Roman Catholic Church, it tells us the mother of Jesus was there. Now the mother of Jesus to Roman Catholics is a paramount person. Mary, the Virgin Mary, the perpetual Virgin Mary. So let's take a little bit of time to answer that little phrase. And the mother of Jesus was there. Mary was of the tribe of Judah. She, she was not from the territory of the Sea of Galilee, but she had family relatives there because she was invited to this wedding. And she very likely had some role in the wedding because she is informed that they're running out of wine and feels the obligation of needing to do something about it. There is importance in the mention of her here. When we read, as Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, and He said, drink ye all of it, is there meaning in those words that we should stop and reflect on? Yes, because Jesus was cutting off 2,000 years ago the lie of the Catholic Church that the wine is not given to the laity, but only to the priests. Jesus said, drink ye all of it. All of them were to drink of it. God knew that foolish women and wicked men would build heresies from Mary. From early times in the Bible, especially women have wanted a female God, a goddess. 
The Jews of Israel even fell for such abomination. And it's described by them making cakes to the Queen of Heaven. Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah chapter 42. Pagan worship does have goddesses. And from the beginning, the woman was singled out in certain respects by God, even in Genesis chapter 3. And she's singled out here in Luke chapter 2, and she's singled out right here by this verse that the mother of Jesus was there. From the seed of the woman, the devil has made her the Savior to the vast majority of Christians in the world. Genesis 3.15 in our Bibles reads this way. And these are words spoken by God to the devil. I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Satan, you're going to bruise the heel of a male descendant of this woman. But the male descendant of this woman is going to bruise your head. A fatal wound. The Roman Catholic Church takes out the seed of the woman and makes the woman the destroyer of Satan. You say, how can I most easily prove that? Go to the Bob Jones Art Museum. Every picture in there is going to have Mary standing on the serpent. It's the Lord Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman, that destroyed the devil. Not Mary. And of course, their Bible version changes Genesis 3.15 to fit their theology. And Bob Jones doesn't care about the theology because Bob Jones II, whether he was saved or not, was the one that wanted that art museum at any expense to be able to flatter the art work of the world. Mel Gibson in 2004, remember that 12 years ago already? When he came out with The Passion of the Christ? That gory movie of the crucifixion of Jesus, which was nothing but an animated crucifix. Mel Gibson, you know, uh, Jimmy Dobson, and the other effeminate Christians in America like him, all met with Mel Gibson to promote, to help him promote the movie. Mel Gibson got up there and preached them a sermon that blew them away. He got up there and preached that if you took a pin and had pricked the finger of Jesus, one drop of blood was sufficient to redeem the world. They were blown away by his respect for the blood of Christ. One drop of Jesus' blood couldn't redeem a frog. It took his death and the shedding of his blood that took away his life. And I'm not doing any disrespect to the Lord Jesus Christ. The liquid that flowed through his veins was not what redeemed men. It was his death. Not a prick. Mel Gibson had this to say. He was shocked. These are his words. Mel Gibson was shocked that the evangelicals loved his movie so much because... I'm quoting him because it was so Marian. The entire thing was to promote Mary. Catholics consider her a co-redemptrix. Do you know what the word redemptrix means? A female redeemer. Catholics consider Mary a mediatrix. Do you know what a mediatrix is? A female mediator. Catholics consider Mary 
a co-redemptrix and a mediatrix in their salvation. Are you aware of their heretical doctrines? Like immaculate conception. When you hear the words immaculate conception associated with Catholicism, it is not that Jesus was conceived immaculately in Mary. That Jesus was sinless by His supernatural conception in Mary. That is not what immaculate conception is. Immaculate conception is that Mary was conceived without sin in the womb of St. Anne. He said, I didn't even know there was a St. Anne. No one did that's ever read the Bible. But they've come up with the mother of Mary, and she conceived Mary without sin, and it's called the doctrine of immaculate conception. It's not Jesus, it's Mary to them. How about perpetual virginity? That Mary was always a virgin. She never had sex with Joseph. What a wicked woman! What a defrauding of her husband! That's not what I see when I read the Bible. I see Joseph rocking that little manger a little bit and looking at his wife with bedroom eyes and saying, He's here, Mary. He's here. Have you stopped bleeding yet? How do I know that? How do I get that out of the Bible? Matthew chapter 1 and verse 25, it says that Joseph knew her not until she had brought forth her Firstborn son. Because he had a whole bunch of brothers and plural sisters. And the Bible tells us about them and names his four brothers. She wasn't a perpetual virgin. Virgin. They say that she's still a virgin. They, call, they still call her the Virgin Mary. Do you know what the doctrine of the assumption of Mary is? Three days after she was buried... She rose from the dead and was assumed up into heaven bodily. It's the assumption of Mary. That Mary is more merciful than God. They love to preach sermons and tell stories about the fact that when you've done something wrong and you go home, you want to go to mommy and you don't want to go to daddy. Mary is called, among other names, Queen of Heaven by Catholics. Because it says here the mother of Jesus was there. doesn't say the Queen of Heaven was there. It just says the Mother of Jesus was there. Queen of Heaven, Queen of the Apostles, Queen of the Angels, Mother of God, Door of Paradise, Our Life, Gate of Heaven, Mother of Grace, and Second Eve. Much devotion, I've taught you this, is, is given to Mary in the Rosary. In the rosary, a string of 55 beads that you're supposed to go through three times for 165 prayers, you say 10 Hail Marys to every one, Our Father. Our Father is Matthew chapter 6. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The Hail Mary goes like this. Hail Mary, full of grace, our Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. And they pray that ten times before they get to a big bead where they're supposed to pray the Our Father. Then they get ten little beads to pray the Hail Mary ten more times. And they get to the big bead where they pray Our Father. Then they get to ten little beads. where That's how you got to do it. I mean, you got to go through it a few times. There are shrines throughout the world and in some Catholic homes to Mary. You could visit Bob Jones Art Museum and see Catholic merit on full display. 
we answer that in the Bible, Mary was blessed among women, Luke chapter 1, and Jael was blessed above women, Judges chapter 5. So if we're going to use the terminology that they love so much, Jael is above Mary. Jael is the woman in Judges chapters 4 and 5 that took a tent stake, a real tent, boys. I'm not talking about your little pup tent. A real tent stake and drove it down through the head of Sisera, the captain of the host, and drilled him into the ground. She is described in the Bible as being blessed above women. Mary is only blessed among women, according to Luke chapter 1. The wise men came and worshipped. It says they worshipped. They worshipped young Jesus, but they never worshipped Mary. When confronted by a Mariolater, and I do want you to see this, Luke chapter 11, there was a Mariolater in the New Testament. When confronted by a Mariolater, Jesus denied her with the truth, and His truth is wonderful, and His truth is consistent with everything else He said about this relationship. I'm sorry, but the Lord just totally turned my world upside down about wanting to preach the whole of John chapter 2 to you in one Sunday, which I could do if we just clipped off the tops of a few mountains. But if we're going to look at the words and realize the doctrine that our fathers have stood on in times past, they knew when it said John 2, 1, and the mother of Jesus was there, that they were going to be able to learn what did Jesus do in the presence of His mother? What was their relationship like? Luke chapter 11, Jesus is preaching, verse 27, And it came to pass, as He spake these things, a certain woman of the company, of course, lifted up her voice and said unto Him, Blessed is the womb that bare thee, and the paps which thou hast sucked. But He said, Yea, rather, that's two buts before we can even get started, But he said, yea, rather, blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. Are you kidding me, woman? You're going to think about a womb and breasts? Yea, rather. It's not a blessed womb. It's not blessed breasts. It's blessed disciples that want to keep the word of God. And Jesus right there put... Jesus right there showed us what He thought of Mariolatry by putting above the birthing aspects of His mother obedient disciples to His Word. In Matthew chapter 12, we have a similar event and a similar response by the Lord Jesus. It's Matthew chapter 12 and verse... Well, at the end of the chapter. Matthew chapter 12. Do you understand... That if we were just ordinary Baptists, we are in a very small minority of people that do not give the preeminence to Mary? How many Catholics are there in the world today? 1.2 billion. How many Baptists are there in the world of all kinds? 105 million. They outnumber us 12 times. Thank you, Lord. We have... Members in this church that were baptized as Catholics when they were born. Thank you, Lord. Matthew chapter 12, verse 46. This is the word of the Lord about the mother of Jesus. While he yet talked to the people, behold, his mother and his brethren stood without, desiring to speak with him. Matthew 12, 46. Then one said unto him, 
Behold, thy mother and thy brethren stand without, desiring to speak with thee. But he answered and said unto him that told him, Who is my mother? Do you understand that we have fathers in the faith that believed a verse like this so much they would die? As opposed to give honor to Mary? Why is this in the Bible? For our fathers in the faith and for us. To stick to worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ and no one else. No man cometh unto the Father, but by me, he said. Verse 48, but he answered and said unto him that told him, Who is my mother? And who are my brethren? And he stretched forth his hand toward his disciples and said, Behold, my mother and my brethren. With an exclamation point, can you read your King James Bibles? For whosoever shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven, the same is my brother and sister and mother. Amen. Scripture denies her any special role at when Jesus was even twelve. Wist ye not that I must be about my Father's business? Don't you know I have more important things to do than to wander, wander around with a carpenter and his wife? He didn't say that. I'm just telling you the full intent of the words. Wist ye not that I must be about my father's business? Jesus never disrespected, nor dishonored, nor disobeyed his parents. Parents, plural, Joseph and Mary, who was his daddy and his mommy. Here at Cana, we're going to learn that he was not going to leap at her pressing him. At his crucifixion, he didn't call her mother. He just assigned her to the Apostle John to take care of for the rest of her life. Jesus called her woman when he spoke to her in public like he spoke to any friend or strange woman that he had never met before. The word woman is what he used for the woman taken in adultery, John chapter 8. The word woman is what he used for the woman of Samaria in talking to her. After the wedding here in John chapter 2, Mary is never quoted again and her opinions are ignored. Before Pentecost, it does tell us that Mary prayed with the apostles, but none of them followed her. She's given no special place at all. While the apostles are foundation stones of the church, Mary is not at all. Though committed to the care of Mary at Jesus Christ's death on the cross, John never wrote about her again. John chapter 2. And the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee. What was that marriage like? It was different than the marriages that we have learned to expect because of Rome's influence, even in Baptist churches and Baptist families. And it says, and the mother of Jesus was there, and that mother of Jesus was just the biological way that God got Jesus of Nazareth into this world through a woman's womb and through the birth canal for his son. And she has no role in our redemption. We don't give her any special place of honor above other women. She's blessed among women. And we trust the Lord Jesus Christ when he says that any of you women that hear the word of God and keep it, you are his mother. You are his sisters. And even we men are his brethren by being his disciples. The Lord Jesus Christ, before we can get through verse 11, is going to undo a lot of false doctrine in this first miracle. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Amen.